as you make your way back to your seats, uh, if you could make room for others. In fact, I, I was uh, reminded this morning because I had left my like iPad and stuff in my usual chair. And then when I came back after greeting some people, uh, Jamie had stolen my chair. <laughs> she stole it. Which is a good reminder that, guys, I don't have a chair. Right? And neither do you. Like, we are here to live for others, and so we're providing space for others. And so let's, let's do that. Let's uh, put that uh, high value into place, even uh, in the service we attend or the place that we sit on Sunday morning. Well, guys, I am very excited to announce that the countdown has begun for the launch of Taylor Bible Church. Pastor uh, James and Katie and their new church family uh, will be having their first public services five weeks from today. Uh, Taylor Bible Church will meet each week at 4 p.m. at Crossroads Assembly of God there in Taylor. And so just to kind of give you a rundown of the next few weeks on the 10th, which is next Sunday, they will have their first preview service. The following Sunday, they will host a vision night, kind of an interest meeting for people who are interested in being part of the core team as they launch this church. And then on September 24th, they'll have their second preview service followed on October 1st by their charter service. Uh, in fact, how many of you were here for the charter service of Huddle Bible Church? Any of y'all in here? Raise your hands. There we go. So that's a grand and exciting night, but the real grand night is the next week on October 8th, they will have their grand opening as the newly formed Taylor Bible Church. And so we'll be commissioning them and praying for them in the service in two weeks on the 17th in both services at the end of the service as we send them out and let's commit to pray for Pastor James and Katie and all the folks who make up this new uh, Taylor Bible Church. In fact, let's do that uh, right now as we begin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray for Taylor Bible Church, for the families represented. I pray especially for uh, Pastor James and Katie. And Lord, our prayer is that uh, Your blessing would be upon them to a thousand generations, just like we sang, for their families, for their children, and their children, and their children, Lord, that you may begin a new legacy there in Taylor, that you would use the families of Taylor Bible Church to give every man, woman, and child in that greater Taylor area repeated opportunities to hear to see and to respond to the gospel, the only message that will save them from their sins. Lord, we thank you for these servants, these missionaries who are going forth. Bless them this day and in their going, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Well, that's exciting. And uh, it's exciting for me that today we're beginning a new sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that title was first given to Jesus' sermon that's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
It was first given to that sermon uh, in the 4th century by St. Augustine himself. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded sermon, and it's likely just the highlights of the much longer actual sermon. I mean, you can read these three chapters in 15 minutes, and if I can preach for 45, I think Jesus could do better than 15. He probably, and most likely for that culture, spoke for hours for those gathered crowds who had come to hear Him. Now, it's also... Uh, not just his longest recorded sermon, it is easily the most famous sermon in all of history. And guys, this is before there were podcasts, right? Before there was televised preachers and all that kind of stuff. Before people were sharing this on social media, this is without a doubt the most famous sermon of all time. And as a result, most of you uh, are probably very familiar with the words of this sermon, even if you don't think that you are. Even if you're new to the Bible, you are very familiar with this sermon. In fact, most of you have committed part of this sermon to memory. Because in this sermon, Jesus includes the Lord's Prayer as the central fee, uh, figure right at the center of the sermon. And many of you have memorized that. Uh, and so you're really familiar with it, but as it goes with sacred things that we are very familiar with, it's easy to know this sermon without really even hearing this sermon. Like you know of it, you know the words, you've heard it over and over, but it hasn't penetrated deep into your heart. And so I'm just asking God for me and for us that as we teach through these in the next three months that God would penetrate our hearts Theologian and scholar D.A. Carson writes this. He says, The more I read these chapters, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. And it's my prayer that God would do that same work in us. And so turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I won't ask you to stand with me this morning because the first people who heard this message did not stand as Jesus spoke. Instead, they sat at His feet like the disciples that they were, and they learned from Him. And so as I read, I invite you to take the same posture. Like as you sit there, imagine that you're sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from Him what it means to be a citizen of His kingdom. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Jesus, it says, seeing the crowds, He, Jesus, went up to the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying... And so let me just ask you, I mean, especially in light of where we've been this year in our own sermon calendar, it should be a pretty easy answer for you. Like, when was the last time Israel gathered on a mountain to hear the voice of God? Like, when was the last time they went to a mountain to receive instruction about how to live as God's free people? I mean, we studied it at the beginning of the summer, about 1,500 years earlier, as recorded in Exodus chapter 20, God spoke to His people from the mountain about how to live in the kingdom that He was giving them. 
Well, fast forward 1,500 years and in this first sermon from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks to His people from the mountain about how to live in the kingdom that He is giving them. Like There's one, of course, significant difference and that is in the scope of the kingdom that Jesus is providing instead of a single kingdom among all the other kingdoms of the world, Jesus promises a kingdom that has no boundaries. All dominion, all authority, all rule has been granted to Him. And we see the fulfillment of this kingdom in Revelation chapter 11 when the angel proclaims, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And so in this Gospel, Matthew portrays Jesus as the true and better Moses. Like He is the one promised by Moses Himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses said that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like Me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to Him. Who is He speaking about? He was speaking about Jesus. The one who 1,500 years later would come to this mountain and in this sermon, warn His people, do you think I came to abolish the law? Like, Do you think this is something new? Like God is done with the old and He's just going to move something fresh and forward, something like disconnected? Like that we can unhinge from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and just forget it? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The kingdom of heaven is the theme of His sermon. And in His message, He is not offering a substitute for what has come before. Instead, He is presenting a fulfillment of everything that has come before. And in this sermon, Jesus presents the manifesto of the kingdom. Like this is how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. Like this isn't the kingdom someday. This isn't the kingdom like when it finally comes, then we need to shape up. This is how citizens of the kingdom are supposed to live in the already and the not yet. Like this is the moral impulse that He calls us to as we wait for and work for the final consummation of the kingdom. The sermon does not teach us how to live to get into the kingdom. It tells us who are in the kingdom because we have received Christ as the Savior and Lord of our life. He, it tells us how we should live. And make no mistake, like Jesus calls us to a true and better counterculture. Like people love countercultural things, but the only way to truly be countercultural is to live with the values of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's the only way. If you want to be a rebel, like in our world, how can you be the ultimate rebel? Follow the law of God. Follow the way of Christ. Follow the Beatitudes. That's how you rebel in this broken world. And so Jesus, in His Sermon from the Mount, 
does exactly what Moses did as he was hearing from God Himself. He tells free people how to live as free people. And if the sermon is Jesus' manifesto, the Beatitudes are His preamble. Y'all know what a preamble is, right? Like preamble to the Constitution, we the people of the United States, that part of the Constitution. Here it is in Jesus' words. He says, Blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are the Beatitudes, and of course you're really familiar with them, I bet. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin beatus, meaning happy or blessed, and so you have to wonder. Like in what possible world does this equal blessed? Certainly, in what possible world does this equal happy? I mean, if you were to take the word blessed and change it to happy, happy are the sad? Happy are the poor? Happy are the persecuted? I mean, that doesn't just sound like wrong. It sounds like just the opposite of the way it's supposed to be. Like how does Jesus' words line up with the world's description of blessing? Well, Jesus turns it upside down. The values of the world are radically reversed in the Beatitudes. Now understand that the Greek word translated blessed uh, is makurios, and it means a lot more than simply happy. I mean, happy a lot of times is just associated with happenings. It's associated with a mere emotion. But the word here captures the idea that we are fortunate, that we are blessed recipients of God's grace and favor if we find ourselves in any of these eight categories. Like Jesus is saying that the divine blessing rests on this kind of a person. Like He wants you to read them all together, understand their progression, and say, if, if you want to know what the good life looks like, this is the good life. It's not a list of doing, it's a list of being. John Stott explains it this way, Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they may feel like, but what God thinks about them and what, on that account, they are. They are blessed. The eight qualities together constitute the responsibilities and the eight blessings, the privileges of being a citizen in God's kingdom. This is what the enjoyment of God's rule means. And so the Beatitudes are descriptions or commendations of the good life. Jesus is not making some 
subjective statement about how these people feel, right? Oh man, if you're miserable and your life is terrible and people are trying to kill you, I bet you're so happy. Like Jesus isn't saying that. It's not a subjective judgment about how they feel. He is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them at that moment. D.A. Carson puts it this way, to be blessed means to be approved, to find approval. Since this is God's universe, there can be no higher blessing than, be, than to be approved by God. And so when it says blessed are the poor of spirit, he's saying approved by God are the poor of spirit. And so whose approval do you seek? Like who, who do you allow to define for you what the good life really is? Like do you really want God's approval more than anything else? Or are you willing to trade it in for something that looks shinier or better? Do you have spiritual ADHD? Like you're focused on Jesus until you see a squirrel, right? The Beatitudes teach us by paradox how to find God's approval. Like the good life that Jesus is talking about. Jesus was the master of paradox. Things like the last shall be first. To lose your life is to find your life. The least is the greatest. G.K. Chesterton defined paradox this way. He called it truth standing on its head, calling for attention. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the Beatitudes. He's yelling, He's shouting for our attention. Like I get the image of the first chapter of the book of Proverbs where, Proverbs where wisdom cries aloud in the streets. Like there's all the clamor, there's all the noise, but above all that, wisdom is heard. And here in these Beatitudes, echoing down through the ages, Jesus calls for our attention. And He declares, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the Greek word translated poor comes from a verbal root which literally means to cower or to cringe like a beggar. Like there are different Greek words for poor. This is the most extreme case for a word to mean poor. Like it speaks of a poverty so deep that the person is reduced to begging. Like they are utterly destitute. Like someone who is fully dependent on others and cannot survive without help from somebody from the outside. But this passage doesn't say blessed are the poor. It says blessed are the poor of spirit. So Jesus is saying blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize that they need help that can only come from the outside. That's the good life. That's the blessed life. That's what it looks like to be approved by God. It's someone who acknowledges their spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves before God. To win His approval. Theirs is the kingdom of God. 
And that word theirs is in the emphatic. It means theirs in a sense of theirs alone. Like the only people who receive the kingdom of God is the people who realize that they don't deserve it. That they should not be let in. That there's nothing they have to offer. He's saying the spiritually proud, the self-sufficient, the people who think they have something within themselves that they can offer up to God, those are the lost people. Those are the people who will never make it into the kingdom unless they humble themselves and admit their spiritual destitution. It declares that no one will be saved who believes that they have something in themselves that would, in a sense, force the hand of God so that He would have to let them in. So, church, delight in your spiritual poverty. Because you are given a kingdom. In fact, you and you alone are given a kingdom. I love how John Piper explains this. He says, What then is poverty of spirit? It is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. And then he explains it this way. He said, the reason I say it is a sense of powerlessness and a sense of bankruptcy and a sense of unworthiness is that, hear this, objectively speaking, everyone is poor of spirit. Everybody is poor of spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unworthy before God. But not everybody is blessed. I mean, the reality is our our spiritual condition is that we're all lost and under the condemnation of God. Like we deserve the wrath of God. If you got what you deserved, you would at this very instant find yourself in the eternal lake of fire. That's what we deserve. So how do you move from one stage to another? Well, guys, poverty of spirit is the posture of faith. As the guy who, used to, who discipled me used to always say, you have to get lost before you can get found. You have to realize your need, your lostness before God, your sin and your unworthiness before you can ever cry out for mercy. Before the cross ever makes sense, you've got to get lost before you can be found. That's why I believe humility is the virtue of all virtues. It's the foundation. All the other virtues are built upon it. The kingdom of heaven, the good life, belongs to those who realize they have no right to think that it belongs to them. And so they cry out to God for help and depend on His grace alone. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells a parable to communicate this to religious people. And it says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness 
and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I love that introduction. Like I'm, I'm, about, I'm about to tell a parable, and who's it for? It's for those who are confident in their own righteousness, their own morality, their own goodness, the fact that they can force the hand of God and get in on their own, and as a result, they look down on others. He tells them a parable of two men who come to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee who stands right there at the right at the front of the temple and just says, God, like eyes in the air, I am so thankful I'm not like that guy. And then there's this tax collector who can't even lift his head. He's so weighed down by the guilt and shame of his sin and he just cries out, have mercy on me, O God. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, (laughs) that one went away justified not the other one. So why is this beatitude first? Because poverty of, poverty of spirit is the foundation of all the other virtues. It's, the, it's only when we admit that we're empty is God able to fill us. Only when we admit that we are lost can we ever be found. Only when we admit that we're helpless can we be saved. Reminds me of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Guys, that should be our attitude because we never outgrow or graduate from the first beatitude. In fact, I, I got to tell you, oh, how I wish I had learned that sooner. Like if, if I could go back in time and whisper one spiritual secret into the ear of 18-year-old Bobby, it would be, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so remember this, because the next one builds upon it. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor of spirit, is in a sense intellectual. It's those who understand something. The light comes on and they realize before a holy God, they're absolutely bankrupt spiritually. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is its emotional counterpart. Like when our spiritual poverty is revealed, we mourn. We grieve. We weep. Like what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? Mourning over our true spiritual condition and over the condition of this lost world. Over our sin and the sin of others. Like spiritual mourning Guys, is absolutely necessary for salvation. Like no one is truly a Christian who has not mourned over their sins. I mean, coming to Christ isn't simply saying a prayer. It's a cry of your heart. Like I can get you to say a prayer. I can get you to pray after me. But if it's not the desperate cry of your heart, you cannot be saved. 
You have to recognize your lostness. You have to grieve over that sin. Repent of it to be saved. You cannot be forgiven if you're not sorry for your sin. If there's no change. And so do you remember? Do you remember what it was like when you first found out your true spiritual condition before God? How did you feel? Like was there, like for me, a sense of terror? Like I stand before a holy God and there is no way if I were to die, He would let me into His presence. And there was a deep grief and shame. And on the other side of that grief, guys, there was forgiveness and a lifting of that burden. So have you mourned over the fact that you're a sinner? Do you mourn over your sin even now because like the first beatitude, you never graduate from the second beatitude. You never graduate from this. You never move on from this. We need to always delight in our sorrow over sin because God will comfort us. You see, on the other side of the morning, there is hope. It says they, once again emphatic, meaning they alone will be comforted. Who will be comforted by God? Only those who mourn over their sin. Who will receive the kingdom? Only those who are poor of spirit. And of course, the next beatitude builds on this as well. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Like, What does it mean to be meek? It doesn't mean meek is not a synonym for weak. It doesn't mean passivity. It's not mere niceness. I mean, niceness can be so wrapped up in your own self-worth and pride that it becomes a negative in and of itself. No, meekness is power under control for the good of others. In fact, we see this most clearly in the person of Christ. Meekness is Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. The same Greek word there for meek. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We must yoke ourselves to Jesus. For He is meekness incarnate. And He promises that if we yoke ourselves to Him, we will learn gentleness and humility. Like, meekness is yielding to the will of the Father. Meekness is submission to God. And what's the reward? Quoting Psalm 37, Jesus promises that the meek will inherit, hear this, not just the land. That's the promise made to Israel in Psalm 37. Jesus promises that they will inherit the earth. Once again, the scope of the kingdom has been expanded outward. The they and they shall inherit once again is in the emphatic. They and they alone will get the whole earth. Delight in your submission to God. In your yieldedness to God. 
because the whole earth belongs to you. And just like the other Beatitudes, you never graduate from this. You never graduate from living a life yielded to Christ. One author explained it this way, The meek are those who say to their king, Not my will, but yours be done. They give the Lord Jesus a blank check and delightfully ask Him to fill it in as He chooses. And when uh, Amy and I have spoken on marriage issues uh, in particular about this whole idea of meekness and humility and gentleness, one of the things Amy often says is humility looks good on everyone. In 1 Peter 5, we're commanded to clothe ourselves in humility. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about meekness. He says, it enhances manliness. It adorns femininity. And it is the jewel of polish. It's a jewel polished by grace. And so church, do you recognize first your spiritual poverty? Ongoing spiritual poverty? Your need for something from outside of you to accomplish that need? Have you grieved over your sin? Have you willingly yielded to the will of the Father? Finally, do you long for God to make you something that you could never be left to yourself? Here's the good news. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. How's your spiritual appetite? Guys, as you walk through the first three Beatitudes, it should stir in you a greater longing for the fourth. Delight in your longing for God because He will satisfy you. Danny Aiken writes that the world is hungry for happiness and it is starving. The Bible tells us to hunger for holiness and we will be satisfied. You know, throughout this sermon, Jesus is really asking one question. He's asking, will you follow me? Like this is the manifesto of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Will you follow me? Will you trust me to define the good life? Like, do these first four Beatitudes describe your spiritual pilgrimage? You see, you never graduate from the Beatitudes. Like, we need to dwell in the Beatitudes. We need to live in these verses. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Think of that moment. Like, when you first trusted Christ, like, what was true of you in that moment? Like, did you have it together more then than you do now? Of course not. Like, did you know more Bible? Could you quote more Scripture? Were you singing better songs? <laughs> like, did you have more of control over the, the, your appetites that controlled you and dominated you? Of course not. All you knew is... Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. In fact, this is a great picture of what I'm talking about here. There was a moment in your life 
Maybe you were going along, happy-go-lucky sinner, doing your own thing, and there was a moment where, bam, you realized that there was a holy God who that you would have to give an account to. And because of His standard, because of what He says in His Word, because of what He clearly communicates, you knew that you did not measure up. Like if you were to be asked the question, if you were to die the night, how confident are you that you would stand before God and be welcomed into heaven? Your answer would be, I hope so. I'm trying my best. I've changed some things. I'm going to church. And other things that, by the way, are damnable. Because if you rest your faith in anything but the cross of Christ, you will find yourself greatly wanting. But at that moment, like for me, that moment came when I was 17 years old and I realized because of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that I was a sinner before God. And that's when the light came on and the cross made sense for the very first time. I'd always heard that Jesus died for me and I always thought, well, thank you. Like, like what do you do with that? But it wasn't until that moment that I understood the cross that in my place as my substitute, Jesus died for me. That He bore my sins. He bore my wrath and my judgment. And I cried out to Him to save me. Well, here's my question. How much at 17 did I understand about the holiness of God? About that much? Not very much at all. How much did I understand my own sinfulness? Guys, I am far more messed up than I ever imagined. And so are you. And so as I spend time with God today, as I think through these beatitudes that I never graduate from, every moment, every day, I should get to the point where I realize more about God, more about myself, and the cross looms larger and more beautiful. As you have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, so walk in Him. Guys, I love that we do communion every week as a reminder. And it's a reminder this morning that we, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, that we are... We're... The, re- the blessing of God rests on us because the curse of God fell on Jesus. Understand that. The blessing of God right now is resting upon you because the curse of God fell on Jesus. He became a curse for us as the Scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this table of blessing that reminds us of that curse. That Your Son on the cross looked into the past and looked into the future. He saw the sin of this world and took it upon Himself. And in doing so, God, You made Him Jesus who knew no sin. 
to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, bless this table. Bless the cup. Bless the bread. May it be for us nourishment for our souls as a reminder of the beauty of the cross of Christ. That we're here today not because we figured something out and we're wiser or better than anyone else. But Lord, we're just beggars. Beggars coming to Your table for bread. Coming to Your table for a drink. And we're just beggars telling other beggars where the food and the nourishment may be found only in You. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.